Don't worry autumn, about that. I had, to, I had to stop for breathing breaks in the <laughs> middle of my summary because apparently I am a 97-year-old smoker. Yes. Just I, kidding. I'm not. I'm not. I don't know what's wrong with me. <laughs> Being in a pandemic makes you out of shape. I'm just going to go with that lie. Welcome to Reader's Digress, the podcast where we read nonfiction books so that you don't have to, unless you want to. I'm Kate Kiriakou. And I'm Molly Fox. And today we are going to be talking about the book, You'll Never Believe What Happened to Lacey, Crazy Stories About Racism by Amber Ruffin and her sister, Lacey Lamar. Yay! I'm so excited to talk about this book. (laughs) (laughs) Amber Ruffin is so funny and amazing, so I'm just really excited to talk about what she made (laughs) yeah it shines through in the book it's a really funny heavy funny read yeah which we'll talk about more but pretty impressive that you can do both right (laughs) yeah yeah it's a testament to the coping skills of human beings the way humor is one of the main ways we work through trauma yeah just the resilience of it i think Yeah. yeah yeah It's a re- resiliency skill. I don't know. Is that resiliency? Yeah, that that's a word? a word. Yeah. Let's go with that. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> All right. Well, um, like always, I say like always as if we have a hundred episodes of your fourth episode. But anyway, like always, I'll start out with a summary um, of this book. So if you are unfortunately not familiar with Amber Ruffin, uh, she is the host of the Amber Ruffin Show on Peacock, which my husband and I have for free through Comcast, which is exciting. Ooh. Peacock is NBC's newest streaming site because, you know, we just needed more streaming sites. It's, That's what I've been saying. It's hilarious because <laughs> in, I don't know, what was it, like 2013, 30 Rock made a whole joke about that. Like. They, predicted so much yeah <laughs> get out of here with your simpsons predictions Blessed it's actually 30 rock 30 rock oh <laughs> uh, gosh i was thinking about milf island the other day oh <laughs> Honestly, what, no. what was it because they were was... saying it was like oh i'm sorry i interrupted about milf island but i was still thinking about the no. peacock where it was like i peacock comedy or whatever it was like yes. instead of heart i peacock like no and then they named like... the streaming service peacock guys it's just really not it no. so anyway so uh i've been watching the amber ruffin show it has been lovely it started i think in maybe november of 2020 which is quite the time to start a show yeah. uh, but um they were renewed and they're still going which is exciting nice uh one of their writers is uh demi adijuibe i believe is how you mm. pronounce his last name who uh people might know from the podcast Gilmore Guys or oh, Punch Up the Jam yeah, uh, or his many, many viral videos uh, online, which are all just perfect. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. love them a lot. So yeah. there's a lot of like parody songs on there, uh, which I, I love. Love, love it. Yeah. Punch Up the Jam is great. Yes, it is. Uh, so obviously, once you're done giving us all of your attention and money <laughs> and support, you can go listen Hop there. Hop over there. 
So in addition to being the Amber Ruffin Show host, she's also a writer for Late Night with Seth Meyers. She lives in New York City, and her sister, Lacey Lamar, lives and works in Omaha, Nebraska, where they were both raised with their parents and additional siblings. And I meant to look this up and see how many other siblings they have. I think it's just two. No, it's more than that. I have, like, two older sisters and then, like, a brother somewhere, and it's at least three. Okay, so I think there are five of them. Yeah. Siblings. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Okay. Insert that in later. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Post-production. So with this book, uh, Amber injects some much-needed life and compelling perspective into the modern comedic memoir genre. Since Botsy Pants, which was written by Tina Fey, comedians have been going around writing memoirs like they have the wit of Tina Fey or like they actually have a compelling story to tell, like Trevor Noah. Most don't have either. Uh, And I would know because I've read many of these books because they're kind of one of my favorite go-to easy books to read. Luckily, Amber Ruffin has more than both of these things. So in this book, Amber and her sister Lacey trade off commentary as they tell the stories of racism that Lacey and other members of the Ruffin family have survived. These stories start out as small daily interactions that we often refer to as microaggressions. Think white people insisting that they look like famous black people, that they look nothing alike. (laughs) We can talk about that more later. But as the book progresses, they also detail stories with more expansive consequences. There's the time a health inspector shut down her parents' daycare businesses after her mom suggested the woman just not cuss out the people who work there. (laughs) And the time that her brother was sent to juvenile detention after forgetting he had fireworks in the bottom of his book bag at school. Amber and Lacey's conversational and his hilarious narration uses the racist actions of white people as the butt of the jokes without ever minimizing how harmful these interactions were and are. These stories are punctuated by biting commentary on the racist ways white people think, lest you get too comfortable cringe laughing and distancing yourself from the white people in this book. Uh, I'm writing that as a white person. (laughs) They never let you forget While these stories might be hilarious or even silly, the culmination and consequences of them are real and important to acknowledge. So the last thing I'll note about this book is that it outlines and talks about a racism that doesn't get pointed out as much as it should. We often talk about the legacy of segregation in the South, but there's also a legacy of segregation in the Midwest, and that legacy is often that racist thoughts are compounded generation after generation in part because their communities are so separated and so many white people don't interact with anyone of another race, like ever. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Northern states have a history of sundown towns or towns that prevented black people from moving into them or through violence forced black people out uh, in the post-Reconstruction era. Uh, I know this because I grew up in a sundown town and around many sundown towns. Molly, I believe your hometown is also a sundown town? Yes, that is correct. Uh, and if you're white and you grew up in a very small uh, white suburb or town and you're questioning why was it 99% white, you likely also grew up in a sundown town. Mm -hmm. They were extremely pervasive, and while this history isn't really touched on a lot, um, I think that this book points out the legacy of it. So this book doesn't do a lot of contextualizing of the racism around these interactions, mostly because that's not what the book is trying to do. But I think that that little piece of contextualization is going to be helpful for our conversation as two people who are white Midwesterners talking about a very white 
Midwestern city like Omaha, Nebraska. Yes. Yeah, and I think for me, I, when I was reading about the interactions that Lacey, mo- the most of the book is about Lacey's experiences because Amber lives in New York City where these experiences are less common. But Lacey lives in Omaha still, surrounded by white people who, like Kate was saying, have had these like compounded ignorances for generations and they haven't had the education or the diversity around them as people to help get them out of those racist like unconscious racist thoughts and actions. Some of the stories are about conscious racism, but some of them are about that like pervasive ignorance that a lot of white people have. Um, Last week, Kate and I were recording for one of our other episodes. And at the end, I mentioned to her that I was feeling really nervous about talking about this book. Um, As Kate said, she's white. I'm also white. And I think a lot of people, white people who are quote unquote well-intentioned have this experience where they're like, well, I don't want to say the wrong thing. And I don't, I know it's important to talk about this stuff, but I don't want to talk about it because what if I say something wrong and I get in trouble? And it's like, well, that's all part, like that is a risk that you're required to take since you don't have to experience racism. (laughs) Duh. You're doing the Uh, bare minimum, white people. Yeah. So like, It's being a little uncomfortable sometimes (laughs) when you choose to be. I'm like, Kate, I'm not sure how I feel about being uncomfortable for five seconds. But when I, when I chose to be uncomfortable for five seconds. (laughs) Um, but so then, and I had a week's warning that this was going to happen. <laughs> and this is like part of what I do, like equity work and other stuff is something I do in my job. So that isn't, it's not even like I don't talk about these things or engage with them, but having it on the record feels scarier. But then it's also like, you get to control the fucking record here. Like, what are you, <laughs> what are you even worried about? Uh, whatever. So, but Kate um, and I had a conversation about, how normally when I'm talking about something that's hard for someone, I empathize by expressing like my own experiences that are related to that experience. But this is much harder to do in this instance because I wouldn't want to relate like, Oh, I know how that feels because I had this experience when in reality, I of course can never know what it feels like to have racism against me. So that led Kate to say something like she gave a framework that I thought was very helpful. And she is going to give that again now, if you're willing, your face is like (laughs) on the record. (laughs) No. Um, Yeah. You know, I wish that I could recall where this came from, but it's lodged in my brain from perhaps some other DE&I conversation that I had had, or it could potentially even be something that I read or just heard on a podcast or any number of other things. So putting that disclaimer out there that I don't know where this came from, but I had heard that for white people talking about race, it's probably more helpful to talk about us relating to things sympathetically rather than empathetically, because empathetically implies that we understand the feelings of somebody who has experienced racism in a way that we can relate to and obviously because we cannot relate to Mm. racist actions against ourselves and we are relating to it by pulling on our other marginalized identities Mm -hmm. it isn't actually empathy it is sympathy so that isn't to say that 
you know, a lot of times we use the word sympathy as being something that's lesser than empathy, which is not what we're trying to relay. But I think it might be helpful just to think about it in terms of like, because we have no idea what it's like to experience racism, it's more helpful for us to understand it in terms of sympathy because we're recognizing that we will never understand. Um, And so that's the place that we want to start from. Yeah. And actually that made me think of one other thing that I'd like, I think is important to mention. Uh, I have had lots of conversations with white friends of mine where they have described an experience that were in which they felt like they, someone was being racist towards them. Either they were the only white person in a group of people or they had a terrible experience. It was like specifically because they were white, whatever. And they have referred to that as racism. And while the experience obviously sucks, no one wants to be the odd one out or treated poorly because of the way they look or the race that they are. That experience is not actually racism. It is maybe discrimination or oppression of some kind, but racism is a structural historical thing that exists in our society against non-white people. Political, environmental, medical, all the systems that exist around us are racist. They were set up, many of them, like the policing force, were set up specifically to oppress Black bodies. And so no matter what happens to you as a white person, even if you are discriminated against by a group of Black people and you feel scared and bothered, that is not racism because you do not have the system set against you. Yeah, that clarification is really important. I will link in the show notes um, Robin D'Angelo's definition of racism in her book, White Fragility, which I think is a pretty good, concise way of understanding exactly what Molly said. Really uh, great and wonderfully. (laughs) But this is some actual research to back it up. Yeah. (laughs) Not saying that what you said wasn't good enough, just adding to the conversation. (laughs) Well, and one other one final thing I'll say about like the the rhetoric in this or the discourse in society these days about quote unquote racism someone being like that was racist whatever i heard on a podcast recently and if i can remember where and link it i will but it was a a woman of color talking about how i think it was on a pod save america episode and Mm. john lovett was interviewing someone so let me see if i can find it but she was talking about the way when someone makes a comment that is racially motivated or what we would call racist, she doesn't love that as like pointing out like, oh, that was racist because it, it minimizes what the term racism actually means. Just saying Mm -hmm. something mean about another race isn't racism in and of itself because that's not systemic. Racism Mm -hmm. in and of itself is always systemic. So There's a difference between discrimination, which is like a a shitty comment about another race, and racism, which is a systematic oppressive force. Right. And how those are tied is that, you know, discriminative... Wait, no, that's not how you say that. (laughs) Discriminatory uh, comments contribute to a culture of racism. But in and of themselves, obviously, individual actions are not the same as the structural systems and we shorthand them as racist and like amber and Lacey do that and they're welcome to do that that's their choice but i think as white people we should be especially careful about what we call racism and what we call other things because it minimizes the the effect of 
what racism actually is when we call all the little comments and and shitty things that we see every day in society racism. Yeah, it definitely invites other white people to think of those interactions as individual and therefore individually solvable rather than systemically solvable. (laughs) Or that they can experience them. If it's all just one-off, like someone said something bad instances, then white people could experience those things and they can't because it is not systemic against them. Yeah. And yeah. So perfect. Great. Wonderful. Okay. So those are our kind of white people nervous disclaimers about this episode, which yeah. uh, <laughs> throwing out there um, because we're trying our best. Yeah. And um, open to learning. So I don't think anyone is listening, but if anyone is and they feel that we should have done something differently, we are open to hearing about that. Yeah. Send us an email. We have an email now. <laughs> Kate, you're always doing things. I love this. I know. I don't even think I told you we have an email. I just <laughs> randomly set it up and I was like, we have an email now. I'm just going to um, start emailing it. <laughs> I know. We're just going to email each other from that account and be like, wow, look how many people care about us. <laughs> I'm going I'm to send an anonymous email to the thing and saying that what you said in the episode wasn't good or something. <laughs> I'm just going to be like, hey, I know it was you. You're the only other person who knows we have an email right now. Perfect. Um, okay. So, Molly, would you yeah. like to start us off with your first key takeaway? Yes. Or your, your one key takeaway, I guess. I did pull two this time. Yes. Um, the first <laughs> one is something that I think is more implicit than explicit in the book. Mm-hmm. They talk about this thing, but it's more woven through kind of each story. And it's that all Black people in America share... Uh, this becoming aware of racism experience. Mm. And in the book, they describe it as this progression from there is a time before you know, there is a slow dawning of the truth, and then there is everything else. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And I felt it was really poignant and sad the way Black people carry this experience And, you know, sometimes Amber would tell a story about a younger colleague or employee, like a colleague of Lacey's and and refer to them as like, oh, sweet young thing, like just doesn't even know yet what's coming, doesn't know yet the way the world Mm -hmm. actually is, or that by standing up to your boss, like you can't actually change this, this system. Mm -hmm. And it, those, all those stages must be very unique like uniquely painful and that loss of innocence that all black people are required to go through in order to survive our society is a fucking shame. Yeah, it really is. And I actually, my key takeaway because we read the same book is (laughs) not the same, but it is definitely similar to Mm -hmm. that. So what I wrote down was that white people walk through the world with not just a completely different set of experiences but also a different lens for the world. There are so many times in the book where um, they describe these experiences where white people were in the room for them and Mm -hmm. just, like, truly didn't understand that these were hurtful actions to black people. And I think as we were reading this, we both said this, but we would love to believe that we've never been that white person in the room, that 
didn't step forward and say, hey, you shouldn't say that or that's not okay and that's really hurtful or any number of other things. But the truth is, is that we probably have been and there's also a good chance that we may not remember it because it was not memorable for us. Yeah. So I think that was definitely something I picked up on. And, you know, when you stack all of these stories together about racism in one book, and again, (laughs) Amber points this out, Lacey's life is not even half over. So this is a (laughs) huge collection of racist stories. She's like, what? I don't know. They didn't give her real age because... (laughs) I think she said she's 45 at one point. Okay, yeah. Um, So, you know, she's middle-aged. Like, this is not over, right? And yet, when you stack all of these experiences together, it becomes a somewhat um, overwhelming amount and you are just like oh my gosh how can one person experience this many bouts of racism yeah and then of course you know as a white person you're like well I know that this happens but I didn't know that all of these things happen to one individual all the time do you know what I mean yes well and that commentary that you just gave reminded me of the thing I was trying to say earlier that I then like forgot in the middle um I grew up in a town in Ohio And it was a pretty small town, but I've lived in larger towns in Ohio, like Columbus. And that was still like majority white in most of like the experiences I had were with white people. And so as I was reading this book, that exact feeling kept occurring to me where I was like, I can't believe that if I were in a room with something like this happening, I would not have not said something. But Mm I, my like realization with that feeling was twofold the first was like I don't you don't know what you don't know in the sense that like if I it didn't occur to me that something was racist because I'm a white person who hasn't had to think through and experience all these things then I wouldn't remember being in a room with something like this happening because it wouldn't have occurred to me that it was happening Mm -hmm. and second again most of the time I'm in a room with all white people yeah. Because of the thing that you described earlier, which is that segregation never went away in a true sense. Like when white people could no longer legally enforce segregation and slavery, they used other means to keep themselves separate and to keep mm-hmm. their society separate. So while we don't see those forces acting in the same ways that they once did, we are still living with the consequences of them. And Mm -hmm. for many white people, the consequence is protection from realizing their own fucking ignorance. They never have to be humbled to see how completely blind to the world they really are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one of the things that we've talked about in terms of the socialization of genders is that um, women and girls have to grow up and understand a gendered world much sooner than men do. Men have to choose to be a part of the conversation uh, much in the same way that white people do. So white people are never forced to talk about racism when they're younger and they aren't forced to even as adults a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And so 
they are so woefully ill-equipped to talk about race and racism to the point that it's like physically <laughs> like pain like pains yes. them in some ways it's yeah. just like what is wrong with us like it's not we aren't the ones who are experiencing the worst effects of racism and yet we act like even someone bringing attention to race is an affront to yeah. our identities and it's really wild because we just aren't forced to talk about it. We have no like tools or toolkit for talking about it. Um, I know the the first black teacher that I ever had was in college. Um, the first black friend that I ever had was in college. I, you know, really didn't interact with anyone of the same race, or I'm sorry, <laughs> of a different race. Yeah. I only act, interacted with people of the same race virtually um, because I grew up in a really, really small farm town mm-hmm. and our community was like 99% white. And so, um, yeah, there's just no like forcing you to, and yet black and brown children are forced to go through this process and they are not given the time to be innocent that white people are. And so when black and brown people ask white people to join the conversation of race, they're so ill-equipped to do so that they're talking about race on like a second grade level when black and brown people are talking about race in a lived in PhD level experience. And the conversation is so mismatched and white people just like, are so bad at it. (laughs) Yeah. Which doesn't mean we shouldn't stop trying. Obviously, we need to do so much better. But it's just like pointing out the fact that if we forced our communities to talk about race at a younger age, it would be so much easier for all of us. Yes. I have two thoughts on that. The first is funny. It's there's this trend on TikTok that was going around for a while where uh, there would be the first part of the video, there'd be a song playing in the background that was like violins and it was like a, a beautiful orchestra. And the caption of the, the video it was usually a woman. And so if it was about racism, it would be like a black woman talking about me talking about the various levels of systemic racism with a black person. And it's like all this like cutting right <laughs> to the point and like very intense, blah, blah, blah. And then the music changes from the orchestra to like, goo goo ga ga like a baby song Literally, and then it's the yes. black person and the caption is like me talking to a white person and it's like you are a white <laughs> and you hate me <laughs> like it's it becomes this like ridiculous like it's a board book racism, racism. bad yeah yeah exactly exactly <laughs> so it that made me think of the way not only are black people often required to educate white people when they have to do that work, they basically have to like get down on a level that is so unbelievably lower than it should Rudimentary. be. Rudimentary. Yeah. yeah. Like teaching someone the ABCs of <laughs> white <laughs> racism. Yeah. It's like <laughs> the oh, ABCs yeah. of whiteness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm sure someone's written that book. That's probably a real book. I'm sure it is. <laughs> the other thing I was going to say is that in, like I mentioned earlier, in my work I have in the last couple of years done progressively more and more equity work in the place I work now that is one of the main driving forces behind their work is to provide equitable services to people and to be equitable within our company and 
that means that we have a lot more candid conversations about something like racism. And we were in, we've been going through this series of uh, racial equity trainings and Mm -hmm. they're all on zoom right now, of course. And I'm newer to the organization, so I don't know any of these people. So I've just been kind of this objective observer to it. And one of the things I've noticed the most is the way white people feel compelled to talk about, A, how bad they feel, and B, how surprised they are. Mm, And I can't imagine how fucking infuriated I would be for someone to be like, I didn't know people were trying to murder you every day. Yeah. The rage that you would feel as someone who's like trying to survive a society that is set up to destroy you and having a white person be like, what? And then talk about it for five (laughs) fucking minutes in a racial equity training. But like, importantly, again, making it all about ourselves. How do we feel about how other people are experiencing racism rather than how do they feel in a racist society that we are contributing to? Because it always has to be about our reaction. Like, we're sad to hear that you're (laughs) experiencing racism. Not like, like, it's terrible that you have to go through that and we need to do better as a community of white people. It's, again, all about our reactions. Yes. Which is another layer of why I felt nervous about this. Because I was like, God, who wants to hear a white lady talk about my feelings on this racism (laughs) book? But again, white people do have a responsibility to enter the conversation in a productive way. Yeah. And to responsibly talk about racism rather than just talking about racism in that you feel upset about it. It's like, right. Okay. Because the cop out and what else? (laughs) Yeah. The, like the cop out on the other end of that spectrum is to be like, I'm just going to make room for other voices. When in reality, it's like, I am too afraid to talk about this. So I'm going to pretend that I'm being helpful by letting other people talk when I'm actually just protecting my own interests. Like that's not good. That happens a lot. I think where it's, I'm going to make a seat for you at the table, but guess what? You also have to make the dinner. Yes. (laughs) And it's like, well, that's not really helpful either because you're asking other people to pick up the slack and do the work that you're not willing to do Mm -hmm. because it's scary. Uh, And it's not that we shouldn't make room for people to also, you know, talk about this, but also like that doesn't excuse white people from having to do the work on their own end. For real. This summer, I worked on an event that was about racism. And one of the things that came up, like, and when we were planning this event, a big part of it was me, this little white lady, can't be the one who's planning and driving this event. So maybe I am doing, like, the logistical bulk of the work, but don't let my ideas be the driving force here. That's a huge problem. And we kept having this discussion about it that was, like, we need other voices at the table. And one of the things that we settled on was like, when we talk about it in that way, the implication is still that we, the white people, own the fucking table. Yeah. Because we are inviting people to it and we have been benevolent to allow you to have a seat here. And it was just like, okay, the layers of how fucking terrible it is the way like we talk about race and it goes, it goes all the way to the bottom. (laughs) Like it is... (laughs) bad <laughs> uh yes that's so true i think that a lot about like de and i trainings that often center white feelings and mm-hmm. 
I don't know. It's just like, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. Like, how do we move past that and actually center the people who are experiencing racism rather than being experiencing being called racist, which is not the same. Like, I can't believe that we have to say that, but yeah. Well, that actually is a great segue into my second takeaway. Yes, which is that sometimes there is nothing to do. Mm. And I mean that in two ways. The first is the other experience I had a lot reading this book was like, oh, if only they had done it like this, or if they had just said this to this Mm -hmm. person, or what if they had just tried this to like avoid the situation or make it better or quote unquote win. And I think Amber and Lacey both do a really good job of being like, it doesn't fucking work. There is nothing you can do sometimes. And, And they have a whole section. It's on page 118 where they go through like the options that you have. And often they're all terrible. Like some of them are like, you, you just take it and ignore it. Like pretend it's not happening. Sometimes it's like you go fucking crazy and fight that person. (laughs) Like other times (laughs) it's, you know, uh, an emotional takedown of them. Yes. But none of the options ever put the person of color in control. Mm -hmm. And there isn't actually a way to do that because what we're talking about is racism. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I mean by like, sometimes there is nothing to do. Like there is nothing you can do to quote unquote fix it, Mm -hmm. especially in those like small instances when you're experiencing a racist thing. Yeah. And then the other thing that I mean about that is that when I was reading the book, the other feeling I kept having was what can we do to fix it? Mm Mm-hmm. And while I do think that there are things that we can all do to work towards fixing this problem, I think what white people have refused to do for so long is to just sit in the discomfort of what they have done Mm -hmm. and not do anything. Because what we want to do is leap over the like repentance part and the shame part and go to action so that we don't have to feel how awful it feels to know what we have done Mm -hmm. but that's one of the most important things we can do because when we jump to action without reflection then we aren't actually doing actions that are helpful Mm -hmm. yeah and sometimes there isn't an action to take and without reflection you don't ever realize that yeah absolutely and actually I hope that this is okay that we just move right into the quotes because let's go for it uh, that leads into the two quotes that I had pulled for this. And okay. I, I want to read them at the same time because okay. the two quotes that I pulled were what I perceive to be the two theses of the book. Okay. The first is a thesis for white people, and the second is a thesis for black people. I love how smart you are. The first thesis... Uh, for white people, I literally wrote thesis for WP on this little <laughs> sticky note <laughs> for whiteies. Okay, <laughs> I'm so sorry, I'm not gonna <laughs> say that again. Um, okay, so she writes in the introduction. There are going to be a lot of times when you are reading this book and you think there is no motivation for this action. It seems like this story is missing a part because people just aren't this nonsensically cruel. But where you see no motivation, you understand racism a little more. 
It's this weird, unprovoked lashing out, and it never makes any sense. It's why so... Uh, it's why it's so easy for people to believe the police when they beat someone up, because no one would be that cruel just because the person is black. But they are. So, as you read this book, when you see there's no motivation, know that there is. It's racism. And that that is just so perfectly concise of exactly how white people react to everything and why it's so hard, again, kind of going back to this individualizing of the Mm -hmm. idea of racism that a lot of white people will see something and say well that would never happen because I don't know a white person who would do this or I don't believe I know a white person who would do this (laughs) which are two different things yeah (laughs) um and also the idea that like oh well that just happened on an individual uh level right that's a bad apple that's a bad situation yeah and so it it becomes so much easier to dismiss because if it's a small individual action then it has a small individual response right when it's a large systemic issue a lot of times it's obviously more complex it's harder for us to solve and so it becomes scarier in a lot of ways and white people are used to taking the easy way out when it comes to race so (laughs) Um, the thesis for black people, and maybe this is wrong because I'm not a black person, but this is what I picked up on, which is, uh, she writes at the end of one of her chapters, the reaction to racism always varies because you can only put up with what you can put up with when you can put up with it. And I think that that gets to the core of what she's saying, which is that like, number one, if you're a black person reading this book, you're not alone. Like other black people experiencing these terrible things, um, like can help you feel less alone in all of this, but also that however you reacted to these traumatic events is okay. Whatever you did was the right reaction because ultimately you can only put up with what you can put up with when you can put up with it. And there's no, uh, right answer to dealing with racism on the side of a, a person of color experiencing it. Yeah. Well, the the thing this reminds me of, um, there's a lot of victim blaming that happens when I'm reading this book and I'm having this experience, like, well, if you had just done it like this, that is me blaming the victim because Mm -hmm. there is nothing that they could have done to keep someone from being racist towards them because it is about them. It has no motivation, right? right? Like exactly. Yeah. It had nothing to do with what they did. It had everything to do with like the way the person was perceiving them and they have Mm -hmm. no control over that. Yeah. And what it reminds me of is this like conversation that I will hear a lot in true crime circles where when a woman is raped, someone will say like, well, you should have fought or someone will say like, well, you shouldn't have fought. And there's like all Mm -hmm. this commentary about the right way to be fucking raped. Mm -hmm. And there is no right way to be raped. Yeah. There is no way that you can react to it. That's correct. So ideally it wouldn't happen at all. Right. That's the whole thing. (laughs) Ideally. And similarly, ideally racism wouldn't happen at all. Ideally, no one would have to go through even one of the traumatic things that she talks about in this book, let alone all of them before the age of 46. Exactly. And I think that is exactly the point that these are traumatic and there is never a correct way or the one way to respond to something that is traumatic. And for an outsider who hears the story to give their, 
commentary or feedback as to how the person should have reacted in order to make it better or prevent it. It's just blaming the victim because it's not their fault that it's happening and they can't control it based on their response to it. Yeah, and this book outlines a ton of different ways that they reacted to (laughs) all of these situations in various different capacities. So sometimes, you know, Lacey ignored it. Sometimes she put people in their place and said, you know what, what you said was just extremely racist. Let Mm -hmm. me explain to you why. Um, There are other times where, you know, she tries to take the more, I guess, bureaucratic route of, you know, going through the supposed systems that are there to prevent things like this from happening or punish people who do this. Mm -hmm. Um, And I actually had written something similarly down. Uh, At one point, they recount a story where she is, uh, she, Lacey, uh, has a career in working in um, nursing homes. And one of the places that she works at. The boss was extremely racist. There were a ton of different racist situations that this boss brought about. Mm -hmm. And they recount all of the ways that Lacey tried to go about fixing this Uh, from the bureaucratic standpoint. Like she, you know, goes and reports, she documents everything, she does all the right stuff. And still this person is not fired. Mm -hmm. And I had written down, it's, To me, I was making a parallel to rape cases and perpetual victim blaming in that the system is set up to punish the victim. And if they do come forward, make them miserable and absolutely deplete their energy for dealing with this. They want to exhaust you so that you just move on, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I think part of what's inherent to victim blaming that I don't know that we talk enough about in society is that if you blame the victim, then the right party is not required to take responsibility. Mm -hmm. That kind of goes into my first quote that I pulled, which it is back to the idea of victim blaming. Amber is setting up an explanation as to why Black people do not like to talk to white people about these very painful and personal experiences even though white people might respond with like, well, if I knew that this was happening, then I would do things differently. And Amber wants to prove that that is in fact not true. And so to set up this scenario, she tells first a horrible, I thought the worst story in the book in terms of like the shittiness of it, which is that as Kate mentioned, her parents owned a daycare center that served a lot of black families in the area. And a a woman who was she a government worker or something? She had like an inspector yeah, ability. Their, um, their daycare was set up to take um, uh, vouchers from the government oh, in order right. to like basically subsidies in order yeah. to function. Um, this woman's job was to come in and confirm that it was in fact a daycare that could stay up and operating. Um, and she, yeah, you can tell the story from here, I guess. I don't yeah. need to, no, thank you. <laughs> I don't need that to was, talk over you. That's okay. That was perfect. Um, so this woman comes to the daycare to do her inspection, realizes that it's owned by two very successful black people and that they're making great revenue from this and that they're running the business well. And then she sets about to destroy the business and she sends in a health inspector who is just a sour, terrible man who gives harsh marks all the time for like a white boy school. He's like constantly giving them harsh marks. So of course, when he comes to the black daycare, he like 
he gives them such harsh marks that they have to shut down. And in this entire situation, they end up selling the daycare and moving on from it entirely, which is horrible for Amber's family, but it's also horrible for the, all the other families that that daycare served and that needed the subsidies in order to have that care. So I wanted to highlight that because it shows the way white people's actions can affect generational wealth in a way that is exponential in a black community. Yeah. And the, the ripple effects of shutting down their daycare business goes on to all of the other families that had children there that they needed to have a subsidized daycare program. And many of the other daycares in the area, as she mentioned, weren't taking the same yeah. subsidies. So parents either had to drive uh, you know, a much greater distance in order to drop their kids off at daycare, or they had to figure out some some other way to deal with this. But you're right, it just completely disrupts an entire community, let alone all of the other, I think, 27 or 30 people who are working at the daycare yeah, lost the their jobs. Exactly. So for all those reasons, it's an especially good example of how much the effects of one racist white person can ripple through a community. Mm-hmm. And how overwhelming that would be as a black person to know that that's what you're up against. Yeah. So Amber tells this story to the reader and then she describes an instance in which she had shared this story at a job she was working at to a fellow coworker and another white coworker who had a history of having these microaggressions uh, overheard it. And so I'm going to read this part that she describes what his response to hearing that story is I say all this to tell you that one day this guy is talking to me about I forget what and he asks me for my honest opinion and I give it to him and it hurts his feelings it hurts his feelings worse than I intended later that day I end up talking about that story about my parents in the daycare center and later he pulls me aside and in that same uber frustrated whisper yell he goes that story about your parents I think they were idiots and that they let that happen to them he starts laughing and walks away See, Lacey, I know some comic book villains, too, she says to her sister. And then her sister goes, what are you even bragging about? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Um, So I think if I overheard that story, my response would be horror and shame. And I think that that is what this man that she's describing his response was too. But instead of taking that and sitting with that feeling and reflecting, he decided to take that and blame Lacey and her family and Amber and her family and to do it in a, the meanest way you could (laughs) to like pull her aside unsolicited and be like, your parents were idiots and they deserve that. Uh, Yeah. How could you, how can you even say that you, I mean, obviously you don't even know her parents. Like, how dare you say that? Like, but also it's exactly what you're saying, which is that white people have to have an excuse for why that racism happened. Mm -hmm. It's not just that the motivation was racism. The motivation has to be that, well, they shut them down because your parents were bad at doing this and they were actually stupid and whatever. They have to come up with some other ulterior motive to racism because they can't just accept that the motivation is racism. racism. And from Amber and Lacey's perspective, that whole family, they have to carry the pain of that story always. And then if they ever choose to share it, not only is it painful to like, 
relive and face the the shittiness of that story. Then they have a fucking white person weaponize the story against them again. Like, bitch. Yeah, traumatize you over your trauma. Yeah. It's, it's the meanest response. And while I am not trying to paint the man in a favorable light by explaining why he is doing it, I think it's important for white people to recognize that when you have that initial reaction of like wanting to find a reason why they deserved it, that is your fucking racism. And it's your unwillingness to accept the the agony of our actions. And you need to sit with that discomfort. Yeah. And shut your mouth. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Stop trying to explain racism to black people. Yeah. Probably. That doesn't really help. I do have a, a lighter quote that we can go to. Yes. So I, I do want to say that obviously uh, this book is really funny. We haven't spent very much time talking about <laughs> why it's funny or how it's funny. And so I definitely want to spend some time doing that. Yes. Uh, One of the things that I want to say real quick is Mm -hmm. that I what I appreciate about this book is that you can tell how much Amber loves her family. Mm -hmm. And in every story, while it's being legitimately hilarious, it's also an enjoyable book because even though they're talking about traumatic events, um, Amber's love for her family and her pride and her joy in them comes through in every single story. I loved seeing her love on the pages, I guess. Yeah, it's very vivid the way she describes those feelings and the pride and joy that she has in her family. I agree. Um, Go ahead with your other quote that I interrupted you. No, to say that's that. okay. I, I think that was, it's important to that's what they do in the book also they go from heavy to light to heavy to light Mm -hmm. in on purpose for the fragile white reader to be able to like have a palate cleanse in between facing the shame (laughs) of their actions um so this this was one of my favorite parts and she's just telling like a lighthearted story about one time that Lacey was out to she was at this mostly white church for a while when she was younger in a youth group and the various hijinks that they would get into. And one time they're at a restaurant and Lacey has a really hard time deciding what she wants to get. Every time she's at a restaurant, she has like indecision over the menu and her, a white girl that was also a part of the group was trying to help. And she, (laughs) so she turns to this boy who's there and (laughs) She's like, uh, wait, let me guess. I'm trying so hard not to laugh because I remember this story and it's so funny. So Lacey can't make up her mind. And everyone is like, Lacey, can't you decide what you want? Hurry up. Then Jenny, the white girl, comes to Lacey's rescue by saying, Lacey's probably never been to a place this nice, guys. She turns to one of the guys they're with and says, Craig, you're cultured. Why don't you help Lacey by explaining to her what's on the menu? Help her figure out what she wants. Lacey says, you need to stop talking right now. That restaurant, Olive Garden. (laughs) The Olive Garden. When you're here, you're condescending. Oh my gosh, I hate it so much. But it did make me laugh so much because the funniest part about that is that I feel like I can confidently say that woman actually does think Olive Garden is yes. a cultured place. Yes. Oh, <laughs> um, but also, 
I have definitely been at a table with those white people. Like a part of reading this was like it hit close so so close to home because again, this is like Midwestern white racism. Yes. But yeah, that was one of the funniest stories in the book, I think. Well, it's this like it's the evidence of this undeserved superiority that a lot of white people have where they think that they're better than black people, but when it comes down to it, they are the kind of person who thinks all garden is fancy. And it's like, bitch, where do you get off thinking you're better than anyone? Like, (laughs) holy shit. But the thing is, the the thing that the Olive Garden story makes me think of is how ignorance is the hardest thing to prosecute. Mm -hmm. Meaning that if Lacey were to be like, why are you being racist to me right now by thinking I don't know that the, that you think I think the Olive Garden is fucking fancy, bitch? this white girl could have just been like, that's not racism. What are you talking about? And it's, there's no way to fucking prove that the reason they thought you thought this was a fancy place and you'd never been anywhere this nice was because they think black people don't have money or whatever the, the, whatever the underlying racist ideology is. Exactly. So it, Oh, it'd be so infuriating. Yeah. I, I, and it is a little bit harder to pinpoint those sorts of things and to trace them back to their seed of racism. Right. Because sometimes it's, yeah, it's just hard to differentiate. Like what, what is the racist thought behind that? Yeah. But I, I think that would be really difficult to have that experience and to know that there's no way to even prove that this person did it because they are racist, but you know that that's why they did it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like a constant gaslighting. Yeah. The white people are like, it's not racism. It's you. And it's like, no, it's you. <laughs> it's and it's racism. You. And that's <laughs> It's your racism. racism. Yeah. yeah. Poor Lacey. I just felt so bad for this girl. She literally just has been through it with her coworkers. So many of these coworker stories. Um, one was the HR lady. Let me repeat that again. Oh, my God. The HR lady um, mm. that she refers to as Nancy in the book is incredibly racist. There's like a whole section just on Nancy and how many Mm -hmm. racist interactions she had with Lacey. So the quote says, Nancy has trouble telling black employees apart. It's as jarring as it is hilarious. She gets people's names wrong a lot. Whenever this happens, I always think, how is this person functioning in the world? Like when they watch TV, do they think, why does Barack Obama host Family Feud? (laughs) (laughs) and that joke made me laugh so hard because it truly is like what the fuck are we doing like for real like why like if you can't tell black people apart it's because you're not trying to and like that's the thing it's not that they actually all look alike any more than all white people look alike like that's ridiculous it's that you're not trying to tell them apart because it doesn't mean enough to you which is so racist. Yeah, I think there is that. Like, you're not, you don't care enough to try. And I think there's this, when we think about white people, we don't reduce them to their whiteness. But when mm-hmm. white people meet black people, they often do reduce a black person to their blackness. And yeah. so this, that racism is twofold. It's like, not only do I not care enough about your humanity to, like, learn what your face looks like and learn that it is different from another person's that maybe looks more similar to you than the rest of your coworkers. Mm-hmm but I will reduce you to the most obvious thing about you and not allow you to have any other characteristics in my mind. How yeah. the fuck? Like, that is... That's the one characteristic you're allowed to have, putting yeah, quotes around allowed. Disgusting. Yeah. Uh, but that entire segment on Nancy is, again, 
pretty wild because she yeah. is the HR woman. <laughs> I, I just <laughs> have to keep time. repeating that. <laughs> I mean, obviously, that doesn't preclude her from having racist mm-hmm. uh, ideologies or being racist in any way. But it is especially frustrating to read that and be like, oh, yeah, you're the system that's supposed to be helping, and you're not yes. at all. You're actually making things worse. And in this story, you were the racist person yeah, at the company. Yeah, you. This reminds me of our the call is coming from inside the house joke. <laughs> right, it's and you. <laughs> to just go on a quick sidebar for a second, my friend the other day had a, a very rude interaction from the HR woman at her job. I'm not going to go into the details, but the the HR woman sent her an email that was like so inappropriate and rude and unprofessional. And then I joked back with her, my friend, I was like, Hmm, maybe she needs to go have a talk with HR. Wait a second. Like it was just like, it's so shitty when the person doing the crime is the one who would like prosecute. Said right. Crime. It's like, Oh God. It's like, oh, good. So the <laughs> defendant is also yes. the judge it's and the, the jury. Judge. He keeps, like, standing up and walking back and forth between, like, the judge seat and the defendant seat. He, like, bangs the gavel whenever he doesn't like something. Uh, for I real. Object. It's just yeah. like, all right, well, yep, I can't see how that could go wrong. Obviously, <laughs> that that's going to be fine. Oh, man. There's also a whole segment where this is not great for a podcast, but if you get this book and you definitely should uh there's a whole segment where she takes photos of Lacey dressed up and trying to look her very best like people that uh (laughs) she's been mistaken for which one of them is Whoopi Goldberg (laughs) (laughs) which I was like how how does she look like Whoopi Goldberg (laughs) it's just one of those things where it's just like you she literally looks nothing like these people like I don't understand what we're doing here and yes. also the people that she's been told she looked like, just a brief list. It's uh, Whoopi Goldberg, let's see, Oprah, Oprah. Uh, Condoleezza Rice. Like, those three people look nothing alike. So if you think she looks like all of those people, then obviously there's something <laughs> wrong there. You're not even trying. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay. Okay. All right, well, what is your, do you want to ask your question first? Um, I kind of want to hear yours because I don't know how I feel about mine. All right, so my question for you is what was the most memorable of these stories for you? And you can choose one that we haven't talked about yet if you want to because I feel like that might be better. I don't know. Okay. You do whatever you want. Um, let me just think for a second. Oh, I know. I know what it is. <laughs> that was not even a second. <laughs> I know. I was my brain panicked and I was like I can't remember any of the stories in this book. What book are we talking about? <laughs> had a sticky note that I turned to and it was exactly the one that I would have wanted to choose anyway. Okay. And it's the story about Lacey being a little girl going to summer art camp with these brand new, very fancy chubby's crayons that were like really hard to get. Oh, yes. And one of her horrible white t-shirts assumed that she had stolen them from one of the white children in the class, took them from her, walked around to all the other classmates and asked them, are these yours? Are these yours? Even though Lacey was very clear that they were hers. The teacher gave them back to Lacey, but then of course Lacey told her mom about it that afternoon. And her mom was, I love the way they talk about 
their mom. She's yes. so calm and collected and such a fucking badass. Yes. So the next morning, she rolls back in with her beautiful Lacey child and lets Lacey go to her desk, takes her bas- backpack with all of her supplies and takes it to all of the teachers and shows each one of them individually, hi, this is my daughter Lacey. These are her supplies that are in her backpack including the crayons and like made it very clear like what all was Lacey's and then when she gets to the teacher who had assumed they were stolen the teacher's all like oh yes I mean we figured that out yesterday and then the mom was just like (laughs) yeah did you figure out that little mystery like and she just like eviscerated her it was I loved it because it was like one of the few stories that had that like satisfying like this person got their fucking comeuppance and they deserved yes. the shit out of it and they like knew that they had been racist even though they weren't called a racist and it was like a it, they had a learning fucking moment and i don't know mm-hmm. that she ever became a better person but it was a great opportunity to become one yes we hope so yeah so oh that was so fucking satisfying i loved it yes i love all the stories about her mom oh. and I really loved the story, uh, the way that she frames all of the stories about her mom, which was to say that her mom didn't want any of these stories in the book. And you would think that by being such a wonderful mother, the least they could do is not include the story she didn't want in the book, but they did it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And I I just loved that because, of course, we all do that to our mothers. And (laughs) yeah, of course, it's It's like, like, sorry, you can still be great and we're still going to do what you don't want us to do. I'm so sorry. (laughs) It just is what it is. Um, Yes, that is perfect. Okay, so do you have a question for me? I do. Um, And if you don't like this question, then you can say, no, I'm going to answer the question that I posed you, which was way better. (laughs) Um, We talked a little bit about how this book, while I was reading it, made me like want to fix and find Mm -hmm. a solution. So I'm curious, when you were reading it, what did the book make you want to do? Mm, That's a very good question. Why did you say this was a bad question? This is a good one. I feel like it's the same thing that I did last time where it's like technically unanswerable because it's like, I think the answer to the question is that you have to sit there and fucking feel your feelings. (laughs) You're telling me what the answer should have been to this (laughs) question. No, but I, what I'm asking is like, what did you feel? Not what the right answer is. So it is a good question. Um, I felt really sad and angry most of it because what would happen is I would read it and I would want to say oh I like I wish that I could say oh I don't know anybody who would do this but the problem is I know so many people who could do this um, and have done similar things because I grew up in an area where we were it was just a very racist area Um, and People were very casual with their racism. I was not introduced to the kind of nice white people racism until I came to college. Like the idea of microaggressions um, was very new to me because all of the racism that I had seen up until that point was so overt because people were able to be overt about their racism. They were, yeah, they were encouraged to be overt Mm -hmm. about the racism rather Um, so yeah, I, I didn't have the experience of like, oh, I've never heard things like that. I had the experience of like, God, this is still happening. You know, the feeling of just like, 
how is this how have we not gotten better at this like we mm-hmm. we've just stayed the same and it's not any better and it just makes me so sad that it isn't uh because that means that while we're making incremental progressions that we're still allowing children to be traumatized by all of this. And that's the part that is so sad and, and everybody else, right? Like it's not just children, but it's also like this cycle is not stopping, right? Mm -hmm. It, it's kind of just shape shifting. Yeah. And I think that's a, a good caution for white people that just because this summer was one of the most blatant, obvious, attempts to overturn some of the structural racism that this country grapples with, that doesn't mean that we have made that much progress with the actual action of turning over those systems. Like just because more people are talking about it than they ever have, doesn't mean that we have changed anything more than we ever have. Mm -hmm. And now we are fighting against a very loud Trumpian racism at the same time. So it's not all of these efforts needed to be ramped up anyway, because that is such an aggressive form of racism on top of the fact that we already live in a very, very racist society. So it's like, we actually, I think white people feel like we've made more progress than we have. And if we lean too much into that feeling, we risk becoming tuned out, checked out of the problem again, because obviously white people have that privilege to, to check out. Um, Oh, there was something important that I was going to say. Oh, when I think when you're reading a book like this as a white person, not a black person, completely different experience. (laughs) I'm talking to the white people. Well, yes, I'm talking to the white people. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. No, no, no. Back up. (laughs) When you are in an... um, experience with maybe a family member or someone then they make a racist comment i think a good strategy in to confront gently is to say the phrase that's not helpful Hmm. it doesn't accuse them of any wrongdoing even if they have done something wrong it doesn't tell them what to do or what not to do It, it is very gentle but it is still very firm and very clear that whatever they said or whatever they did is not having the outcome that they maybe want or that you find helpful. Yeah. So I I like that a lot. I have, I have not heard that, but I I find that to be very helpful hearing that because there are a lot of times where again because white people are very ill-equipped to talk about racism among their own communities in addition to with uh, people of color. Um, I think there's a lot of like, where's the manual for this? Where's the manual for this conversation? How do I have these conversations? What's okay to say? What's what? How do we get across uh, important things without it devolving into an entire argument that again is not helpful right <laughs> but right. I think but not like laying over and just being like okay you can say whatever you want around me because this is a safe white space yes yeah and I think you can use it in a lot of situations you know it can be with your like totally Facebook racist uncle or it can be with a white person who is quote-unquote well-intentioned in a racial equity setting and you can be yeah. like hey Janet I understand what you're saying, but I don't think that's helpful right now. 
Yeah. And, and it can be just very gentle like that, but it, it, it is a hand up in their face to say, you need to stop saying whatever you're saying in this moment. Yeah. Um, whatever so, you're doing is not helping. Exactly. <laughs> so stop. So weaponize that ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, I'd like to pretend that I learned that in therapy as I have spent many thousands of dollars on it, but I actually <laughs> learned that from a TikTok. <laughs> I love this. I love that our wisest words of wisdom are coming from TikTok. Thanks, Gen Z. I know. Oh, whatever. Y- y'all figure it out and then just let us know and we'll do whatever you tell us to. That's yes. my yes. outlook towards the next generation. You can make fun yes. of me all you want, but just help me be better. Yeah. <laughs> can um, you do that? No promises that I'll stop using the laughing emoji anytime soon, but... I will not. I want to go on record. I will not. I am not willing to compromise on that one. There is this um, whole thing... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go. I was going to keep talking about TikTok, which is inappropriate and not the point. So please continue with what you were going to say. Uh, I was just going to say that I found... I was trying to... figure out how to rate this book and I had so many different ways of rating it (laughs) um and I want to say them all can I just say them all yeah okay so the first one was just the 100 emoji (laughs) (laughs) perfect (laughs) so I was like this book is great it's so innovative it's it has something to say and it has a point of view but it's so funny uh and love the way it's written just love everything about it Mm-hmm. Um, this is the standard to which I will hold up all other comedic memoirs. Fabulous. Uh, the other one was that medical scale that doctors use when you go into the ER of like what hurts like yes. on a scale of one yes. to ten. It's like a sad <laughs> face and like an yeah, okay and I was, face. Yes, exactly. And I was like, ten on the ten, this hurts the worst. <laughs> As a white person. Yes. Um, <laughs> and then uh, the third one was... So every time that she ends her show, mm-hmm. the Amber Ruffin show, she ends it by drinking a margarita. Oh. So I was going to give it 10 out of 10 margaritas. Oh, my God. Those are all perfect rating systems. <laughs> I love so it. So I'm giving her three ratings because I love this book yes. so much. Um, well, luckily, none of your three ratings are the rating that I chose. Perfect. Um, in the book, Amber does talk a little bit about cops and about driving and what mm-hmm. that's like to be like a black person using a car of any kind. And so I decided to rate this book as going a 50 and a 45. Uh, yes, I love this. Fast and fun. And just, it like takes just enough risk to like make you think and feel and reflect, but it can't really take you to a dark place the way some books about racism and this kind of content could. And mm-hmm. I think they do that on purpose because they want it to be accessible while still being very honest. So yes. it's a 50 out of a 45 in a 50. Oh my God. <laughs> I don't even know my own rating. It's going 50 in a 45, just a little bit of danger. Very fun. Blasting yes. loud music. Love. Perfect. Uh, do you have a pop culture pairing for this book? I do. What is it? Um, there is a podcast that I love called Scam Goddess by mm. Lacey Mosley. She is a black woman who lives in L.A. now, but she is from, uh, I think, s- Texas. 
somewhere, <laughs> definitely <laughs> somewhere southern, but I can't tell how, I can't remember how far west or east that southern point where she lived is. <laughs> anyway, so she's an actress and a comedian, and she has this podcast about scammers. And it's, so it's like true crime e, mm. but it's not the kind of murder true crime. So it's, yeah. it's lighthearted true crime. It is very funny. She talks about her experiences as a black woman, um, in a very honest way, but that's not the whole focus of the show. And she always has a guest on and she has just some of the best guests that I have heard on podcasts. And they, I'm the type of person who mostly listens to like pod save America. So all I ever hear is white men talking to me about white man things and (laughs) white man things. That's great, (laughs) I guess. But this has brought a lot of new perspectives to me and I've enjoyed it immensely. I love that. Uh, My pop culture pairing was going to be a black lady sketch show, which is on HBO uh, Amber Ruffin actually wrote for a Black Lady sketch show. I do not know how much, um, but it is so funny. <laughs> I really, like, really enjoyed it. I burned through all of it at the beginning of the pandemic mm-hmm. uh, because I needed something that was going to make me laugh. Uh, as the title suggests, it's all acted by Black women and Black comedians uh some of the big names on it i think the the program creator is robin Thede, who actually had her own talk show kind of like late night host on another network which i'm forgetting right now um quinta brunson who is hilarious uh ashley black who's hilarious yeah. ashley black is one of Lacey's guests often yes um i could be getting it mixed up with someone else but i think ashley's been on there uh, all of them are amazing. Highly recommend it. It is very bingeable. And if you have HBO and have not checked it out, you should. Nice. Love it. I actually haven't, I haven't watched it, so I should do that. If you have not seen, um, the YouTube clips from Late Night with Seth Meyers that, oh, yes. uh, Amber Ruffin does with her coworker, Jenny, last name redacted. I don't remember <laughs> what her last name was. Um, that makes it sound like it's like a dirty word. Um, I don't remember what her last name is. It's like Hegel or something similar. Okay. Uh, I don't, I don't look those up on YouTube. Also hilarious. Um, really good content. Yeah. Agreed. Um, what did, what is the closing tag we came up with? It was like, yeah, we actually came up with a way to close the show, but now we forgot. Um, anyway, I digress. (laughs) Oh, that's what it is. Yes. Anyway, I digress. Thanks for joining us and tune in again next time for more More of this. What what was it like that? More of our bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. And on a swear. (laughs) 